0: So, this morning, before we get started, um, you might be wondering, where is Pastor Chuck? Well, he is, as you know, this last fall became grandfather, and so today he is at his granddaughter's uh, baby dedication. And so, uh, when you see him, congratulate him again, and we want to just celebrate uh, the joy that he's able to experience in his family. And so... We all have a story to tell. And so what is the most memorable sermon illustration that you've ever heard? I'm pretty confident that the first thing that that came to your mind is a story. I'll take it one step further. I'll I'll bet it was a personal story the pastor told about himself. Now, if I'm wrong, you can have my bag of apples that the Partlos gave me last week, okay? (laughs) That's all I got. Um, and so uh, one of the pastors I grew, uh, pastors I grew up learning uh, my faith from, uh, shared an illustration that immediately came to my mind as I considered this question for myself. Uh, I don't remember his text. I don't remember uh, his point. but what I do remember is him sharing a story when he was a teen and about his, uh, how his neighbor, uh, his parents' best friend, Uh, who was an Episcopal priest, had molested him. Uh, He told me uh, how he had shared that with his parents, and his parents uh, swept it under the rug and said, we shall never speak of this again. And so that's what he did. He kept silent until he was in his late 30s, early 40s. Wow. He had just shared from the pulpit This guy is really confident in who he is in Christ and is willing to let us see his faults, his weaknesses, his shame. And that impressed me. And so in a few moments, I'm going to attempt the same. Uh, A lot of church experts uh, are are writing articles uh, and, and creating Facebook posts and and recording podcasts bemoaning the idea that young people are leaving the church in droves. Surveys indicate that our nation is incredibly unchurched as more and more people respond by saying they have no religious affiliation. And so how do we reach people who uh, may have been burned or have decided they have no need for God in their lives? And so I came across this survey uh, from a colleague that uh, he found in the Institute of American Church Growth. And they asked over 10,000 people this question. What was responsible for you coming to your church? Two percent said they had a special need. Three percent said that They just walked in. 6% said that they liked the preacher. 1% said that they had visited there before. 1% said that they had liked the Sunday school. And 3% said that they had liked the programs of the church. And hear this. 79% said a friend or relative invited them. That's impressive. I I was shocked when I saw those statistics. I I was blown away. I would have thought uh, some of the other statistics would have been higher. But 79% of those folks said that a friend or relative invited them. Bob Russell, who is a a pastor, teacher, and author, uh, he illustrated this idea at a church leadership conference and he, and he told of a time, uh, he approached a visitor in the congregation uh, who had come to church and, and he had asked him, how did they come to being there? Uh, and so they told him, well, so-and-so invited me. And so he went to so-and-so and said, how, how did you come to church? And asked them the same question. And they said, well, so-and-so. Told me. And he did this five or six times until he finally got to someone who answered that they saw the church sign while they were driving by and decided to just stop in. And so this one person, this one person led as many as seven families to finding Christ and their home church. That's impressive. Now, some of you may be thinking, uh-oh, here it comes. He's going to ask me to put myself out there and share some long, difficult formula for winning people to Jesus Christ and, and get them to join the church. Well, no, let me assure you, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to teach you evangelism, evangelism Explosion or the Roman Road or some other script that you need to share your faith to win people to Christ. I want to encourage you that, that it can be much, much simpler than that. You simply need to share your story. That's it. You just simply need to share your story. We see it more and more in the world around us. Story has become king. Young people are immersing themselves in movies and television and YouTube and videos and and video games that tell stories. The subject matter can be hard, but as long as it's told well, people will listen. I believe this gives an easy way to reach out to the next generation. We simply need to tell our stories. They may argue with the facts that we know from Scripture or or, or supporting evidence, but but they can't argue with your experience. They can't deny what happened in your life as you've learned to trust in Jesus. Jesus. They need to hear more and more of our stories. Whether we're the hero or the dishonorable, our stories can make an impact for Christ and bring glory to those who are listening. And so I know this year in children's ministry uh, that they're going to be, actually they've already started, but they're going to be encouraging the adult serve team and the children to start telling their story. I know student ministry, we kind of do that all the time with the students. They, uh, they're telling their, our story, their story and we're sharing bits of our story with them. And so uh, in the book of Luke, uh, we also see storytelling is very important. In fact, uh, Luke shares Saul's conversion three times. Probably one of the most important evangelism tools Saul had was a story of conversion. We can learn how to share our stories by following his example. And so, I'm going to read with you, I'm not going to ask you to stand, because it's a long passage, but we're going to read from Acts 9, beginning at verse 1. All this time Saul was breathing down, and I'm reading this from the message, because I wanted it to be a little different, so this is the the message version today. of Message Sunday. And so uh, it says, All this time Saul was breathing down the necks of the Master's disciples, out for the kill. He went to the chief priests and, and, and got arrest warrants to take uh, to the meeting places in Damascus so that if he found anyone there belonging to the way, whether men or women, he could arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem he set off. When he got off to the outskirts of Damascus, he was suddenly dazed by a blinding flash of light. As he fell to the ground, he heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? He said, who are you, master? I am Jesus, the one you're hunting down. I want you to get up and enter the city, in the city where, you tol- uh, where you'll be told what to do next. His companions stood there, dumbfounded. They could hear the sound, but couldn't see anyone. While Saul, picking himself up off the ground, found himself stone blind. They had to take him uh, by the hand and lead him to Damascus. He continued continued to be blind for three days. He ate nothing and drank nothing. There was a disciple in Damascus by the name of Ananias. The master spoke to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, master, he answered. Get up and go over to Straight Street. Ask the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus. His name is Saul. He's there praying. He has just had a dream in which he saw a man named Ananias enter the house and lay hands on him so that he could see again. Ananias protested. Master, you, you can't be serious. Everybody's talking about this man and the terrible things he's been doing. His reign of terror against your, uh, your people in Jerusalem. And now he shows up here with papers from the chief priests that give him license to do the same to us. But the master said, don't argue, go. I have picked him as my personal representative to non-Jewish and kings and Jews. And now I'm about to show him what he's in for, the hard suffering That goes with the job. So Ananias went and found the house, placed his hands on blind Saul and said, Brother Saul, the master sent me. The same Jesus you saw on your way here, he sent me to you so that you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. No sooner were the the words out of his mouth Then something like scales from Saul's eyes, he could see again. He got to his feet, was baptized, and sat down with them to have a hearty meal. Saul spent a few days getting acquainted with the Damascus disciples, but then went right to work, wasting no time preaching in the meeting places that, was, uh, that this Jesus was the Son of God. They were caught off guard by this and, and not, not at all sure that they could trust him. They kept saying, isn't this the man who, who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem among the believers? A- and didn't he come here to do the same thing? Arrest us and drag us off to jail in Jerusalem for the sentencing by the high priest? But their suspicions didn't slow Saul down for even a minute. His momentum was up now, and he plowed straight into the opposition, disarming the Damascus Jews and trying to show them that this Jesus was the Messiah. After this, he had gone on quite a long time. Some Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul got wind of it. They were watching the city gates around the clock so that they could kill him. Uh, then one night, the disciples engineered an escape by lowering him over the wall in a basket. Back in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't trust him one bit. Then Barnabas took him under his wing. He introduced him to the apostles and and stood up for him, told him how Saul had seen and spoken to the master on the Damascus road and how in Damascus itself he had laid his life on the line with his bold preaching in Jesus' name. So after that, he was accepted as one of them going in and out of Jerusalem with no questions asked, uninhibited, as he preached in the master's name. But then he ran afoul of a group called Hellenists. He, uh, he had been engaged in, in running against uh, arguments with them who plotted to murder. When his friends learned of this plot, they got him out of town, took him to Caesarea, and then shipped him off to Tarsus. Things calmed down, After that, and the church had smooth sailing for a while, all over the country, Judah, Samaria, Galilee, the church grew. They were permeated with the deep sense of reverence for God. The Holy Spirit was with them, strengthened them. They prospered wonderfully. May God bless the reading of his word. And so every story, every story has a middle, a beginning, middle, and end. And so let's break Saul's story down and consider how we might share our own story. Saul's story began in Acts 9 verses 1 to 2 by describing his extreme devotion to the, to the, as a Pharisee. He was very zealous for God. Uh, but rejected this Jesus the the Christians spoke of. He was there to approve the stoning of Stephen and is willing to travel in his efforts to put an end to Christianity. Now, some of you uh, have just a dramatic beginning. You lived a life that the world would embrace, but maybe not so much God. There was no doubt that you were living in a rebellion against God or or maybe you completely denied his existence. These stories, like Saul's, can be very dramatic and make a big impact on others who have found themselves caught up in similar life choices. And now some of you may be concerned at this point uh, that you don't have such a dramatic story to tell. But let me assure you your story is equally important. In a world filled of of role models and leaders who, who just epically fail, it is good to hear a story of those who found God early in life and have stayed the course through trials and temptations. Don't let the absence of a climactic change stop you from sharing how God has been faithful to you. And so the middle of Saul's story takes place on the Damascus Road, and is uh, related in in verses three through nineteen. And Saul sees a bright light. Then he hears the voice of Christ call out to him. He blinded him by the light, and then sent to pray. And then Ananias finds him on Straight Street. He instructs Saul to repent and wash away his sins through baptism. When he does, his sight is restored. How did you come to Christ? When, when convinced you, uh, what convinced you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Tell people what happened. It may have been simple as year after year, lessons of building up until you reached a point that you had to decide for yourself. It might be that that God snatched you from uh, the clutches of death and you realized you needed to live for him. Your experience, your story will resonate with the people you share it with. Saul's story concludes with some amazing things happening. He traveled throughout the Roman Empire. He was spreading the gospel and organizing churches. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Do you believe that? He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament that we use to direct our lives to Christ today. God was able to use a man who once tried to snuff out Christianity to ensure its global spread and lasting impact. I just think that's amazing. I never would have chosen Saul. But... (laughs) Thank God I'm not God. Your story continues today. What is God doing in your life? Where have you seen Him at work? These are also the important things to share. One of the the strongest pieces of evidence that God exists is the impact He has on His children's lives. That's you. Share your story, and God will use it. And so I'm going to take a few moments, and I am going to share my story, uh, kind of in bullet form. Uh, I I have done this rarely. Uh, Students have heard more of my story in a bullet here and a bullet there and a story here and a story there. And this week, uh, I actually put it all down on paper, and to see it—this uh, is most of it, not all of it—but uh, it was it was rough <laughs> uh, because it brought back feelings and emotions and and things that I I would choose not to remember if I could, but I can't, and so. Using the inspiration of the, the illustration that I remembered uh, and shared at the beginning of the story, it has given me courage today to share my full story uh, with you. And so, I was fortunate enough to be born into a family that went to church regularly. I remember being carefree as a young child, laughing Just enjoying my life. My sister and I would walk the fields. We lived on a small farm. And I remember we would lay in the grass and we would uh, look to the sky and we would call out the shapes that we saw in the clouds. I remember once when I went and did this uh, in the field behind our house. And I was by myself, and I was looking up at the clouds. And I I can still remember vividly, and I think I've only shared this with just two or three people, but I remember looking up at the clouds and seeing Jesus' face pop out from behind a cloud. Uh, And from that point forward, I knew God was with me. It was in first or second grade, that my family became dysfunctional and stopped going to church. Fortunately, my my grandparents who lived next door, they were faithful in taking me to church whenever I wanted to go, which I did often because I didn't want to have to do chores on the farm. Um, But my parents' marriage was falling apart and so was our family. In second or third grade, I witnessed something that I wish I hadn't. My dad was having sex with my sister. He didn't see me. He didn't realize I was there. I didn't really know what was going on at at that age, but I knew I shouldn't say anything or I'd get in trouble. Fortunately, um, I remember uh, accepting Jesus into my heart in third grade. It was Mr. John Wildermuth who gave me a a tiny book. And he told me to memorize John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so I memorized it. By the time I was in fifth grade, I had been exposed to pornography, drugs, alcohol, I also was molested by other family members. I spent most of my elementary years feeling unwanted, unloved, bullied, and stupid. It seemed like I, I never had enough. Mo- we never had enough money uh, to, to pay our utilities. We had to use my grandparents' phone next door for a phone. Uh, It seems like we never had clean clothes or enough food to put on the table. I remember before school, mom would take us uh, to the clothing drop, like the one that's out front, and we would climb in the box to get clean clothes for that day of school. In seventh grade, uh, my mom learned of my sister's sexual abuse, and so she left my dad and took me and my sister with her. It was in eighth grade that I had to tell the district attorney what I had witnessed. My dad fled to avoid his arrest. And so my mom started going back to church, and she started to get her life back together. She had a lot of baggage herself that I didn't fully understand. But she started getting her life and her act together. And she started to lose weight, and she started... To, to oil paint again. People in the church came alongside us and helped us get back on our feet by providing groceries. It was in ninth grade, age 14, my mom got a new job uh, working at a hospital in Reading, Pennsylvania. And so that morning of our first day, I remember telling her goodbye as I was going out to the school, out the door to catch the bus. And as I was closing the door, Uh, My mom said, be good, and I reopened the door, and I laughed, and I said, don't I always? And, uh, And I closed the door and ran off to school. It was an hour and a half later that she was killed in a car accident. After the funeral, there was a family meeting to talk about what to do with me. My sister was 16, almost 17. She became an emancipated minor. And so I was the only one left that needed someone to care for. The next four and a half months, I came and went as I pleased. Uh, My older siblings were so involved in their own lives of chaos, of alcohol and drugs, and, and I felt like I went unnoticed. Um, That summer, I got a full-time job. Uh, I would get up at 7 a.m., ride my bike to work, uh, and be there by 7.30. I was cleaning and waxing floors at the elementary school that I attended. And then I'd get on my bike and be home by 4. In August of that summer, uh, my pastor came by, and he picked me up to attend VBS that week. And so one night, he took uh, took me out for ice cream, after VBS, and, and told me of my options. He said that I could live with uh, another family in the church, and he told me who they were, and, and they had uh, uh, three or four sons. And then he said, um, I could live with a family member. I could live with one of my brothers. And then he said, uh, you could also come and live with us. And as you know... Most of you know that is Jeff and Joan Freimeyer. And so you have to realize I didn't say hardly two words to anybody. And so the next day, God gave me courage and wisdom to tell them that I'd like to come live with them. And so on the first Sunday or the first Saturday of that September at 3 a.m., Jeff got a call that his father had died. At 9 a.m. later that morning, I moved in. He lost his dad and became a dad all in the same day. For the first time in a long time, I felt safe and secure. I felt wanted. Jeff and I worked through a lot of grief together, just crying. (laughs) Mom would sit at the table and just try to figure out what kind of emotional mess she was dealing (laughs) with. (laughs) To this day, I have never blamed God or asked God, Why me? Why did this happen to our family? I also thought, well, why not me? There were other people that had it worse off than me. I knew that. But God gave me a chance to have new parents that loved me unconditionally. They supported me when my dad was arrested and brought back for trial. Jeff and Joni also made a tough decision, and they decided that I wasn't going to be the only person to testify against my dad because the rest of the family had been talked into not testifying. And so the charges were dropped against my dad, and he was free. I had the opportunity to, to, to go back and live with him. The court allowed me to decide that. Once again, God gave me the courage and the wisdom to say no to my dad and to say yes to Jeff and Joan. I saw the chaos in my family and I didn't wanna go back into it. At that time, I, I, I wanted to be a chef when I grew up. And so I enrolled in vocational school and uh, the, the, the month that my mom had died. And, uh, and so it was now my 10th grade year And so in the vocational school, I was fortunate to work the morning shift, and so we got to do more of the cooking uh, and serving of the food to the the school staff that we made, and the afternoon class got more of the cleanup. And so I loved loved, uh, that school year. And so by the end of 11th grade, for reasons beyond my understanding, I withdrew from the program. This had to be the most stupid decision I ever made in my life. For months in my head, I would just beat myself up because I just didn't know why I did it. Well, then I came into 11th grade. Uh, I was now 16. I had been a part of the church youth group uh, for for, uh, just barely over a year. And uh, two weeks into September, I attended the state youth convention. And it was there, everything fell into place. I felt the call to ministry and suddenly I wanted to go to college. Uh, I went from flunking math and English in seventh grade to graduating in the top fifth of my class out of 516. But I was also torn inside. I wasn't glad that my mom had died. But I was grateful my life had turned around. And so I would thank God, not that my mom was dead, but for the opportunities that he put in my path. So at 18, I moved to Anderson, Indiana and attended college. Uh, I lived on my own ever since then. College was challenging and difficult for me. Uh, I I felt alive and alone all at the same time. I worked multiple jobs to get through college. During college, I I fought with God, telling him he had the wrong person. I'm not pastor material. I was shy. I I didn't make friends easily, and I filled my head with self-doubt. During a trip with one of my bosses, I was molested. How could this happen? I was an adult, yet I felt I had no choice. On the surface, I felt alone, but deeper inside, I thought, how can God use a person like me? I eventually took a class with Dr. John Ackerman. Uh, it was during his class that I realized God wasn't calling me to be a senior pastor, and many people have said, Doug, when are you going to be a real pastor? <laughs> I did all the same hard work that everybody else has done, but God wasn't calling me to be a senior pastor. He was calling me to be associate pastor, and when I realized that, I said, uh, I can do that. <laughs> You see, for for me, doing a sermon was writing a research paper every week. And it's painstaking for me. And so that was the primary reason I didn't feel like uh, I could do it. And so my, my first position in ministry was at Maple Grove Church of God in Anderson. And I served there for five years as minister of Christian education and youth. And uh, Pastor Brandon, uh, his grandfather, was the senior pastor at the time. And so I I, I believe we probably met. Where are you, Brandon? There you are. I'm pretty sure we met uh, at his retirement. What, you think you were about six? Six years old? (laughs) Oh, that makes me feel old. Um, But I was the youth pastor and uh, to my wife's uh, two younger siblings. And so life was good, uh, and uh, I had graduated college, and I was attending seminary part-time. And then it was in 1991 that I turned 26. Uh, I, I tried, uh, I was just tired of the dating scene, uh, and I was tired of the games of it, and I thought, Lord, if, if you're calling me to be single, I'm okay with that little did I know, Susan was having a similar conversation with the Lord and uh, just got out of a relationship with a guy who kind of was stalking her. And so uh, most of you know, if you know Susan, she loves cats, right? (laughs) And, uh, And so she had heard that I had recently gotten two new little kittens. And so I told her, you know what, when I clean my kitchen up, I'll have you over to meet them. And so um, apparently it was a long while because I hadn't cleaned my kitchen. (laughs) She's nodding yes, okay. And so she got tired and she had to to pay a bill that was near my house and and so she just stopped in and decided to just pop in uh, by my apartment. And so she not only got to see my two cats but she got to see my filthy kitchen. And the stack of ditches, dishes in the sink and on the counter. And yeah, I was, I was not happy about that. But um, we uh, hit it off and we secretly started dating. Uh, we didn't let anybody in the church know. Uh, even her parents didn't know. We were that good. Um, <laughs> And so two, uh, two months later, I receive a call and some of you may know uh, Mike Trace or remember Mike Trace. But he was on the, the, the chairman, he was the chairman of the search committee here at First Church. Uh, and they were looking for a pastor of Christian education and church administration. And so I made it through my third interview and, and they asked me to come and candidate. And so I said yes. And I asked if I could bring someone along whose opinion I had valued. And Mike said, sure. <clears throat> that was Susan, by the way. Um, and so the first hurdle was that I had to, to tell Susan about these interviews and that I wanted her to go with me. And so uh, as I'm telling her, I, I said, yeah, it's this place in Talmadge, Ohio, and she's like, I know where that is, and I'm like, I don't even know where that is. Uh, and so, apparently, I, I think it was about 14 months earlier, or was it just that summer? That's oh, so it was only like three or four months earlier. She was here in Talmage, at a wedding, on the Circle, uh, and and so uh, anyhow, she knew where Talmage was, and I knew nothing. Um, and so, the second hurdle was that we had to tell her parents that she was going to go off for an overnight weekend with a youth pastor. (laughs) Doesn't sound real good, does it? Um, Because, again, they didn't know that we were dating. And so one Sunday evening after church, we invited them, hey, uh, do you want to go with us to, I think it was Frisch's, wasn't it? And and so uh, we went to dinner, and we sat across from her parents, and and kind of told them the situation and what was going on. And her mom was excited. She just had smiles on her face, and, and her dad was sitting there with a salt and pepper shaker, and he filled every little hole with a toothpick. <laughs> Not really making a whole lot of eye contact. Um, but in the end, uh, I told him that I thought she was the one and they gave us their blessing. And so, we come to First Church in November, and it's a rare thing, but there was a horrible snowstorm that weekend. And to be honest, I thought the heart of the weekend was horrible. I thought it just was miserable. And so, uh, as soon as the, the business meeting was over, uh, there was a blizzard going on. They said, hey, why don't you stay and spend the night? And I was determined, I'm getting out of Dodge. This did not go well. Uh, and so we got in the car and started. Oh, and, and Susan said, yeah, she knew we were coming here. Uh, and, and I was like, Lord, if you want me to go to Talmadge, I need a 95% vote of confidence. Well, the next morning, I get a call from Pastor John and uh, God has a sense of humor. Uh, he told me I had a 95.25%. <laughs> and so I still struggled a bit, and I talked to ba- Pastor John about a few things that I thought went horrible in the, wee- in the weekend, and uh, he reassured me of some things. Uh, my, one of my best friends, who was pastor at Maple Grove then at the time, said, you know, I I think you should go because I wanted to, I could easily stay. I, things were going famously at Maple Grove. Um, and so I told them I would come. Two weeks later, uh, I got engaged uh, on December 2nd. And so we dated like three months or less. This was really fast. <laughs> but I knew I didn't want to lose an opportunity uh, fine woman that Susan was. And so uh, it was during um, well yeah and so then I came in, in February uh, uh, February 2nd of 1992 uh, and that was 31 years and three days ago. Whew. I've been here ever since. I never would have dreamt that. But it was during our our fourth year of marriage, um, my life imploded. Uh, I was at Promise Keepers event, and I invited Susan's dad to go with me. I was there with Scott Stedman and John Lenzo and Pastor John and a few others from the church. And uh, we were over in Pittsburgh. And I was in the worship, and I was experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit and and glad to be there with my father-in-law but wishing desperately that it was with my real dad. I knew that would never happen. My childhood had caught up with me. I couldn't keep the pain of my past to myself any longer. And so one evening in my office, I broke. I sat down and for the first time I I told Scott Steadman about my childhood and my college experience. Scott listened, and then he said, you need to go home and tell your wife. Telling Susan was one of the most difficult things that I ever had to do. I was full of shame. I was embarrassed. And so I went home, and I told her, And she held me as I sobbed for, I think, hours. 26 years of silence and pain came out. I went through a a year of deep depression. Depression is real, folks. (laughs) It's real. I would get up and I would curl up in a fetal position on the floor in the bathroom, just trying to get the nerve to get a shower and go to work. I didn't want to face another day. I didn't want to face myself. I'd sit on this very platform, attempting to lead worship. And all I could think was that everybody was staring at me. I knew you weren't but I felt like everybody was staring at me, judging me and knowing everything that was in my mind. That was the worst feeling. And so through the year of counseling, I learned that my identity wasn't based on the things that happened to me or to my family. My identity came from who I was in Jesus Christ. I had to stop looking at myself through my eyes. That was not an easy thing to do. I had been doing it for over 30 years. But I needed to look at myself the way God saw me. My marriage was on the rocks for a while, to be honest. Susan felt betrayed and lied to, and I understood that. Thankfully, thankfully, God gave me a loving, forgiving, compassionate wife. I couldn't ask for anybody better, Susan. There are other details that are a part of my story that I haven't shared. Maybe another time. But I'm here to tell you this, God has watched over me and he has provided for me with exactly what I needed, exactly when I needed it. I am proud to have called Jeff and Joan Freimeyer mom and dad for these past 44 years. I am proud to have called Susan's parents mom and dad for 31 years. She still tells me, her her mom still tells me, I loved you first. (laughs) And she did. I have two younger brothers that I've had the privilege of watching grow up from birth, get married, and have wonderful families of their own. Family is important to me. I don't get to see them very often being in ministry, but you need to know this too. You are important to me because over the last 31 years, you have been my family. God knew I needed this church long before I did. And so I wanna thank you I want to thank you for supporting me and encouraging me the last 31 years. First Church has been a place of healing for me, a place where I've been able to grow in my faith and understand God's grace. I thank God for each one of you and all those who have gone on before you. If you'll allow me one more story to tell. And many of you have probably heard this story, but it's, it was John Newton and he was born to a Puritan mother who died when he was only seven years old. His father was a sea captain and who began to uh, take him on his voyages at age 11. He later, later served on a slave ship, but didn't get along well with the crew. Who handed him over to the African slave traders, where then he was enslaved himself. After being rescued, uh, the ship he was on got caught in a storm and things looked hopeless. Newton called out to God for deliverance and his ship shifted in such a way that the, the, the leaking hull sealed and the ship was able to drift to land. He looks back at this event at the beginning of his journey towards Christ. He later wrote the words, Amazing Grace, one of the most beloved hymns sung in our church over the past two centuries. It's stories like this that help us see that there is no one, who is outside the reach of God, out of his grace through Jesus Christ. It's because of God's amazing grace that we are able to extend this invitation each Sunday. I once was lost, but now I'm found. That can be your story too. Uh, The worship team is, is, is gonna lead us And you can come up now. But they're going to lead us in amazing grace. And if you need to give your life to Jesus, here is your opportunity. Come forward as we stand and sing. And we'll help you open the next chapter of your story. Tell your story.